All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. Start making your way back to your seats. And as you do that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This week, uh, we're going to start a new series. It's going to go for seven weeks. Uh, It's a series that's entitled The Seven Churches of Revela- in Revelation. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next seven weeks at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. Jesus writes seven letters to seven, seven different churches. And so we're going to take the next seven weeks and dive into these, these letters written to the churches, see what God has to say to them and what, what we can glean from it. And, and this morning we're going to begin by looking at God's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 7. So if you're there, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7. Excuse me. Hear, Hear the Word of the Lord. It says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word and this letter written to one of your churches, God. I pray that as we dive in, you would give us eyes to see, that we would have ears to hear what it is you have to say to the churches. God, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to... I want to tag this sermon, if you will. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? In 1984, Tina Turner released that now famous song, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's a catchy song. Some of y'all chuckled when I said it. I'd be willing to bet that in some of your heads you started, started singing that song. I, I see some, some nods there. It's catchy. I'm glad you didn't burst out into song, though, because we're not that kind of church. Those aren't the songs we sing in worship. But in that song, though, Turner actually presents a way of understanding the world that whether we realize it or not has actually continued to grow and to to gain some traction. As you may know, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but the song The song is all about telling someone else that you want all the benefits of a romantic relationship without one key element, any genuine affection, without love. She sings, as most of us know, what's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? She goes on and says, love is a secondhand emotion. Now, what Tina Turner sang about has actually become much of the thought that's undergirded our society today. Our society believes that all that matters is the action. And emotions, they're secondary at best and unnecessary most of the time. It's interesting, in her book, uh, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy highlights this divide in thinking that's 
pervading our society. And, and when speaking of, of just this current kind of hookup culture that we see today in our world and the mindset that's, that supports it, she writes this. She says, the social script that they, that's kind of the people in the culture that they hear most often, tells them that having fun means engaging in physical relationships without any emotional attachment. She goes on to argue that as much as that idea might be present, it's, it's impossible to do. But the reason I say all of this is not because we're going to be talking about God's design for relationships and sexuality, though that is a conversation that we should probably have soon, but to highlight that we live in a culture that is attempting to separate actions from affections. You tracking with me? It's trying to separate what you do from what you love and how you feel. But the separation, it's not only present in the culture, but it can be present in the church. And let me say this, that is not a new phenomenon. We we may live in a culture that is right now perpetuating this idea of action separated from affection, but our culture did not create that separation. As 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that there is no temptation that has overtaken us except that which is common to man. Or Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Since its formation, the church has had to wrestle with how actions and affections intersect. The connection, right, between how we love and what we do. And so the church, way before Tina Turner wrote that song, has had to consider this question of what's love got to do with this. And in our text this morning, what we just read, God highlights vividly for us the necessity of love in the church. Now, I want to show you what God has to say because the church in Ephesus, it serves as an example for us and God's communication with her has lessons that we need to learn. But before I do that, I got, I got to give you a little background, right? I'm ready to dive in. I want to unpack the text. But before you can eat the plate, you got to dish it sometimes, right? So let me, let me give you a little bit of background. We are in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very unique book of the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible. And the book of Revelation, there's a reason I'm sharing all this with you, right? Dishing out the plate. The book of Revelation is in the genre of apocalyptic writing, meaning it's writing about the end of this world. And just to be clear, Christians don't have the market on apocalyptic literature. It's been around for a while. Almost every religious group has apocalyptic literature. Fiction writes a lot of apocalyptic literature. Now, in order to make sense of apocalyptic literature, we have to understand a little bit about the genre itself, about the writing style. And typically, apocalyptic writing or end times writing, whether it's Christian or not, it's typically highly symbolic in nature. There are a lot of symbols and, and, and pictures that are used to try to teach. They, they use a lot of of pictures to speak of what will take place. And a lot of those symbols, I would argue that most of the symbols in Revelation are not necessarily literal things that are going to happen. So I may show my cards here a bit about my position on Revelation. That's okay. It's not a secret. But when I read some of the imagery that comes in Revelation, I see symbolic language and not literal things that are going to take place. Let me give you an example. In Revelation 12 and 13, the Bible speaks of a dragon, speaks of a woman that will get wings like an eagle. I don't necessarily believe that at the end of this world, there's going to be a literal dragon that's going to come out of the sea. I think it's symbolizing something. Revelation 13 speaks about the mark of the beast. People talk about it all the time. Apparently, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. I learned that. I don't know what that says about me because I got it. Uh, I, I don't believe necessarily that people will have a, a literal physical mark on their body that is a mark of the beast. But here's the thing. I'll just be honest with you. I hold my view with an open hand. So if at the end of this thing, if a, little, a literal dragon shows up, I'm going to be a little freaked out, but I can roll with it. right? If, if a literal mark of the beast starts appearing on people, I'll be a little freaked out, but I can roll with it. So, so I hold my interpretation with an open hand, but, but I do believe that Revelation contains highly symbolic language 
to communicate some very significant truths. And I'll give you the cliff notes of it. Here's the truth of Revelation, that this world is hard for Christians. But this world is coming to an end. And when it ends, those who have endured with Christ will dwell with him. The Lamb of God, slain for sinners like you and me, we will dwell with him and we will sing his praises for all of eternity. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more pain. There will be no more struggle. The new heavens and the new earth will be our home. I don't really care what you believe about Revelation. As long as you get the key points, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in victory. And when he comes back, we will be with him forever. But I also believe that Revelation paints the picture that for those who have not trusted in Christ, there will be a real, eternal punishment that is rightly deserved because of their rebellion against a holy God. And at the beginning of the book, God speaks directly, right? So while Revelation is highly symbolic, a lot of that symbolism begins to pick up in chapter 4. But at the beginning of the book, and there is some symbolism we'll unpack in 2 and 3, but God speaks directly to seven real, living, and at the time, active churches. He examines them, he praises them, and he corrects them when necessary. And in these seven letters to the seven churches, there is a wealth of truth about how the church must must live in a world that is broken, that is painful, but a world that is coming to an end. So let's pick up there in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we know a few things based on this first verse. We know who the letter is directed to. It's not hard to figure out. It's the, the church is in Ephesus. We know who is writing this letter. It says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. You can go back. I'd actually highly encourage you. Revelation 2 and 3 will make a lot more sense if you spend some time this week studying Revelation chapter 1. But we know from Revelation 1 verses 12 through 18 that the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands is Jesus. He mentions seven stars, seven angels, or messengers of the church. So so the seven lampstands represent the seven different churches that he is writing to. Now, before we kind of dig into the church in Ephesus, one of the things that I love is at the beginning of each of the letters to the church, Jesus tells us something about himself because ultimately this isn't about the churches, is it? It's about Jesus. And in verse 1, he says that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So let's just pause and, and, and savor the beauty of that statement. What that reminds us of is this, that Jesus has got this in his hands, that this church, and we talked about it in our last series, this church has never depended on how well we program. It's never dependent on how seasoned the pastors are, praise God. It's never depended ultimately on how active you are. This church exists because Jesus holds his churches in his hand. And he loves us. And that's good news for us. Because it means that when the world throws its best at us, we're safe in the hands of Jesus. We're safe. But so let's, let's dig in here a little and see what Jesus has to say about the church. And there are three overarching things I've, I've pulled out that Jesus is saying to the church. Here's the first thing that he says to them. That this church, the church in Ephesus, they got the actions right. They got the actions right. Look at, look at what it says there in, in, in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus got the actions right. Now, let's be honest for just a second, and maybe it's just me. I want God to say those same things about this church. Look, Newbreed, I know your works. I know them. 
I know your labor. I know your endurance. I know how you are fighting for the truth, how you are contending for the truth. It has been hard, but you've not grown weary. I want God to say that about Newbridge. I want him to say, I see you. I see how you're living, and it's good. But notice in this commendation to the church in Ephesus, God or, or Jesus, who, who is speaking this letter to John to be written to the churches, he, he, he commends them for three specific things they're doing well. First, they're working faithfully. They're working faithfully. Jesus says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. So what Jesus is saying is that, is that, you cannot tolerate evil people, and you are striving to do what is righteous. Like, we can't miss this. They weren't motivated, right? The church in Ephesus wasn't motivated by self-recognition. They weren't motivated by the opinions of others. They weren't motivated by personal gain. They were motivated by what was righteous. They hated what is evil. They were doing righteous things. And we don't know specifically what works Jesus has in mind. He leaves it rather vague, but he does make it known that what they were motivated by, what they were working for, was righteousness. And again, this is high praise for the church. I don't want us to miss it. Jesus is affirming here that as Christians, how you live matters. It it matters. The the Christians in Ephesus, they refused to bend to what the culture was telling them they should do. Pay pay attention to that. Because the church is in a very similar spot today. The church in Ephesus refused to bend to what the culture was telling them they should do. They refused to bend to what the culture was telling them they should believe. Isaiah 5.20 warns us that that there, there is coming a time where there will be those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There is, for every one of us, a real temptation to ignore righteousness or even worse, to accept what is wicked as righteous. And what Jesus is communicating is that how you live your life, it really does matter. And the church in Ephesus was motivated by righteousness, and it was revealed in how they lived their lives. We we see the very same thing in verse 6 where where Jesus says, yet you, you do have this. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Bible is not really clear about what the practice of the Nicolaitans was. There's a lot of speculation about who they were and what they believed. I don't know what they taught. I don't know who they were, but I know one thing. God thought they were evil and so did the church. That's a good place to be. When God says something is unrighteous, it's wise for the church to say it's unrighteous too. It might be hard when the culture is telling us that it is righteous, but we don't compromise what God has said because the culture tells us to. James 2 verses 18 and 19 remind us of this. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I love this. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe and they shudder. That was Ephesus. It's not enough based off of James, based off of Revelation 2, it's not enough for us to simply say we believe. Your life has to back it up. I mean, when you read that passage in James, it's kind of a mind-boggling thing to think that the demons probably have a better theology than most of us in this room. Uh, some, Some of them have seen God. They know who He is. They believe He's one. Right? That, they have a Trinitarian belief. They understand the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They got theology down. But they're still demons. And, and what Jesus is communicating is that it's not enough to simply say, I believe in God. It's not enough to simply say, I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. Satan knew that very well. It's interesting, in all of these letters to the churches... After Jesus introduces himself in a different way, he always says this, I know your works. I know what you do. I know how you live. And I want to be clear, 
Jesus is not saying that if you do the right things, you'll be saved. Jesus is saying that if you want the litmus test for whether or not you really believe that Jesus died from the cross, rose from the dead, if you really want to know, if you have a saving faith in that and you have repented, he says your life will look different as a result. It will look different. I know your works. Now I want to be clear. This is not to say that what you believe is not important. In fact, the very next thing that Jesus commends them for when, when considering their right actions is not only are, are they working well, not only do they do the right things, but they're believing faithfully. Look at the second part of verse 2 there. Revelation 2 verse 2, he says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. The church in Ephesus was not only doing the right things, they were believing the right things. They were holding to sound teaching. They know what the truth is and they know what the truth is not. They went so far as to identify those who were teaching false things and to call them liars. To call them liars. Right? That, that doesn't go over well today, does it? In a culture of you, you believe your truth, I'll believe my truth, and as long as they don't butt heads, we're good. But when someone starts speaking their truth, and it's not Jesus' truth, to say, I need you to know you're lying, and that that truth is a lie. And if you believe it and declare it, you're a liar. That's probably not the, where you start with evangelism, for the record. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't really know when it happened. And maybe it's always been like this. But we see it clearly in our day and age. For some reason in the church, we've pit right living and right belief against one another. And I'm not sure when it happened. Right? I've, I've heard it said like this. I've heard this statement. I don't really care about all that doctrine and theology stuff. I just, I just want to be like Jesus. Like Jesus didn't have good theology. Like he wasn't teaching some deep truths about who he was and who God is. But I've also heard it say, right, like, I, I don't really, listen, I don't really care about doing all those things, right? I'm not so concerned with, with correcting the, the oppressor and, and with, with, with doing justice. I'm not necessarily concerned with feeding the poor. And, and they might not go so far, but people have basically said that, like, I don't really care about the actions. I want the, the theology. I want the knowledge. I want my head to be filled. As if the one you're studying did not model faithfulness in how he lived his life. I, I don't know where the separation came that in order to live right, you got to believe poorly or that if you believe right, you got to live poorly. I think Jesus painted a picture of, man, when you believe good things, you live the right way. And you can't live the right way unless you're believing good things. And I'd go so far as to say deep things about God. And the church in Ephesus was commended for both because both are necessary. Please hear this. I'm not going to dwell here too long. But if your theology does not force you to live like Jesus and care about the things and the people Jesus cared about, your theology is wrong. And if your life is not motivated by the deep truths you believe about God, or you could say your theology and your doctrine, then Jesus is not pleased with how you're living. And the church in Ephesus had both. They had good theology which motivated faithful living. But there's more. Not only were they living faithfully, not only were they believing faithfully, but they were also commended because they were enduring faithfully. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and you have not grown weary. And we got to understand, it wasn't easy for the church in Ephesus to faithfully live the Christian life in their context. It brought with it hardship. I mean, Jesus says, I know that you're enduring hardship. Persecution, it brought with it trial. See, in order to kind of make sense of this, we have to know a little bit about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, though not necessarily on paper the capital 
of Asia Minor. It was practically the capital of Asia Minor. It was the hub of of the government and the modern day culture. It was filled with probably the most diverse people, people from different ethnicities, different beliefs. It was was the center of trade and commerce because there was a huge seaport right there. The city was famous for its worship of Artemis. We actually read about that in Acts 19, roundabout verse 24, where it talks about how they worshiped Artemis. And so there, the church in Ephesus is in the midst of a diverse city, of a, a culturally relevant city. It has people from all over. And in the midst of this, the church was being faithful, even though it was being persecuted. I like, I like what Derwin Gray says about the church in Ephesus when he writes that the local churches in Ephesus were hope to the world that there was a better and more beautiful way to be human. But it was not easy. It wasn't easy. Ephesus was what we want to be. It was one of the strongest multi-ethnic churches there was. Paul spent time there, training, building it up. Titus spent time there. Timothy spent time there. And Ephesus was a living, breathing picture of the kingdom of God in a place that was hard to be a Christian. And they were enduring. And they were not growing weary. And I don't want to underestimate the weight of that because as a pastor who's been in ministry for a minute, like, you can get weary easy. It is not a small feat for Jesus to say, you've been going through it and you're not weary. You're enduring and you're holding fast. That is high praise. And so the church was definitely getting some things right. The church got the actions right. But then we got to turn our attention to the next thing that Jesus says. They might have got the actions right, but they got the love wrong. But they got the love wrong. Look again at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Can you imagine what it must have been like to hear that statement from Jesus? I mean, after all that encouragement, like we like the encouragement, right? I've been on cloud nine, like Jesus thinks I'm killing it. You know, like we would have, we would have loved that. After praising their works, after praising their beliefs, after praising their endurance, and then Jesus says, but I have this against you. And then he says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. God says you've abandoned your first love. Now here's the thing that I found very interesting when I was studying this text this week. I noticed that a lot of commentators, I mean honestly most of the commentators that I read, they noted that they made it a big deal that Jesus didn't specify what love they had abandoned. He just said they abandoned their love. And so some were arguing, well, this is clearly a reference to loving God. They had abandoned their love for God. I read some commentators who were like, no, 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 that that this is clearly a reference when you look at their history and some of their struggles. This is clearly a reference to to a love for fellow church members, right? They loved God, but but they'd lost their love for one another. And then there's some who are saying, no, 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 it's not either one of those. Some argued, and they all argued really well, by the way. That, that it's a reference to a love for mankind in general. Yeah, they might have been doing all this stuff, but they didn't really love the people that they were doing it for. They didn't love the people they were ministering among. But the more I thought about it, I mean, I'm, I'm diving deep into these commentaries. Sometimes you got to be careful with commentaries. They'll get you in trouble. I'm spending way too much time on this issue. And the more I was reading it, the more I just kind of kept saying, who cares? Right? Jesus didn't need to specify what love he's talking about. Because I think it included all of it. And the reason for it is because you can't claim to love God if you don't love people. And you can't claim to love people if you don't love God. So it doesn't matter which one it was, it was all of them. I mean, that's what we read in 1 John 4, 19, right? We love because he first loved us. But then a few verses earlier in 1 John 4, 7, it says, because love is from God. Doesn't say what kind of love, just love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Now, now I, want, I want to just sit with the weight of those verses for a second. What, what that means this morning for us is that if you or I come into this place and we sing songs about how great our God is, we clap and raise our hands and shout. If we, if we cry out in prayer our love for God and we walk out of here and we hate the people around us, you don't love God. You can't love God. But on the other hand, you can be as kind and compassionate and as caring. You can fight for justice and you can show mercy and you can do everything that you, you possibly can muster in your own strength to show love for people. But if you don't love God, you don't actually love anyone. Because true love, based on God's word, a love for God and a love for others, can only come when we first know His love for us. And we savor that love more than anything else. But this one verse, right, verse 4, coupled with what came before, there's, there's so much to preach here. I struggled to, to, to preach it, y'all. Y'all listening to this on a wish and a prayer because I have enough notes here for probably two hours, so I'm like sifting as I go, which is not normally a good thing. So here we go. So much to preach. But, but verse 4, it, it actually, I don't want us to miss this either. It actually teaches us something about idolatry. You, you might not have caught it, but let me show you. You know, when we talk about idolatry, what we're talking about is putting anything in the place of God. That's idolatry in a nutshell, putting anything in the place of God. Now, now I wonder, now I'll admit this is speculation, but I think there's some good evidence for it. But I, but I wonder if for the church in Ephesus, the good things they were doing, I wonder if they maybe replaced the greatest thing. Like, I wonder if a love for right living and right belief and endurance did not somehow become the things they loved more than they actually loved God. And if that's the case, they became an idol. You see, we got, we got to have an honest conversation about idolatry as the church, because for most of us in the church, our idolatry isn't going to be an Exodus 32 kind of idolatry. You remember what happened there, the golden calf? That's not going to be our idolatry. We're not going to think that our leader has left us. We're not going to pull our earrings out and craft for ourselves a golden cow, put it up on a pedestal, and say, there is God, let's worship him. I don't suspect that that's going to be us. I mean, I, I don't, it's not going to be some made-up God, something crafted out of silver or gold that you now think is a God like what takes place in Isaiah chapter 32. It could be, and we'll talk about it. They prepped us for it in seminary. But I don't think that's going to be most of us. You see, for most of us in the church, idolatry will be when we take the good things of God and we place them in a higher place than God. Right? We take his gifts like our family, like our job, like our culture, like our money, like our fill in the blank. We take any good gift. It's not bad. It's good. They are good things from God. But the problem comes when we take those things and elevate them above God. And I want to be clear because I think this is where we get jammed up. The solution is not to love those good things any less. The solution is to love God more. Because for Ephesus, we can't, I heard this preach one, and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this isn't it. I heard it preached that what God is trying to tell them is like, your, your works are good, but you're doing too much. Like, like you know, you're, you're enduring too much, if that makes sense. And, and the goal is not to try to get the church in Ephesus to do less of verse 2 and 3. It's to get them to love God more. He's not trying to get them to dial back their faithful beliefs. He's not trying to get them to do less righteous things. He's not trying to get them to endure less. No, no, no. God is saying continue to value those things. Press on in faithfulness. Love righteousness. Love the truth. Endure till the end. Just love me more. See, this is something that we, we as the church, that we as individuals have to take seriously. I've I've said it before, and I'm not afraid to say it again. There are some Bible verses that scare me. I don't know if you're supposed to be scared of Bible verses, but there are some that scare me. 
And for me, and you've heard, some of you heard it before, the scariest verse in all of Scripture for me, scariest passage is Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But this is what gets me. He says, and many, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. That's Ephesus at this moment right now when Jesus is writing to them. They did the works. They were seeing the miracles. They were loving their actions, and their belief. But they weren't loving God. They were doing the right things, but those things replaced God. And in the midst of everything that was going on, they somewhere, somehow, they lost Christ in the midst of it. They lost the gospel. They lost their love. But we sang even this morning, about how patient our God is. Because here's the third thing that I want you to see, and this is the beautiful part. They got a chance to change. They got the actions right. They got the love wrong. And our God is so kind and so patient and so loving that they got a chance to change. Look at what it says there, what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In this verse, Jesus is encouraging them to repent and come back to that first love that they lost. But when you, when you kind of break down verse 5, it's a, a very interesting verse because Jesus actually tells them to do three things. He says, I want you to change. I want you to change. You're my church. I love you. By the power of the Spirit, I, I will help you to change. But you've got to be willing to change. And if you're going to change, it's going to require three things. Here's the first thing. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. I like how the ESV says it, the English Standard Version, where it says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. See, here's the idea. Jesus is saying, if you're struggling with your love for me, right? If, if you can't seem to muster it up on your own, he's saying, don't forget the gospel. That's a good place to start. If you are struggling with your love for me, Jesus says, go back to the beginning. Do you remember? Right? Jesus says, remember where you were when I found you. Re remember what mess you were in. Remember when you were at your lowest and thought that there was no way out. Remember when you thought you were too far gone and there was no hope. Remember when you thought nobody could love you. Remember how painful your mistakes were. How excruciating your past was. How strong that addiction was. Remember how devastating your sin was. And then remember how great my grace is. Remember how when you were low, I reached down and got you. Remember how deep my love is. And Jesus is saying, but remember what it cost me. Jesus Jesus wants them to remember how he took our sins. He took our struggle. He paid our debt as he was nailed to a cross. He died our death. But then he rose from the grave alive so that we could live. And all of this because he loves us. Oh, Jesus says, take it back to the beginning and remember my love for you. You know, there was something about that moment when we first got saved. Can you remember it? When you first trusted in Jesus, there was this passion. There was this love. There was this fire. Sometimes I get stuck telling the same stories. 
So I don't know if I've told this one or not. But it's still a good picture. I rem- there's, a, there's a moment that sticks in my head. And it's no shade, shade on him. He was, actually, he was actually speaking truth that he didn't realize. I remember when I got baptized. January 8th, 1995. I remember it. I remember coming home that Sunday after church. Like, I, I was hyped, right? I mean, I, I had trusted in Jesus a little bit before because you, you get baptized after you trust in Jesus, but I was hyped. I had just been baptized. Couldn't nobody tell me nothing. I knew Jesus was king. I knew his way was best. I knew righteousness mattered. And I remember going in the living room and my older brother, God bless him, he was watching a show. And Christians, can you believe this? Somebody said a curse word. I looked at him. I knew it all. I said, hey, we, sh- we shouldn't be watching this. I remember it vividly. I said, Jesus wouldn't want us to. And my brother spoke to me probably one of the honest things that he's ever said to me. He might not have known it. He says, I remember how I felt when I first got baptized. Don't worry. That'll fade. And I said, in a way. In a way. And here I am, some nearly 20 years later. And can I be honest with you for a minute? It's faded. It's not as easy to love God as it was at the beginning. There seems to be more struggles than I remember as a nine-year-old. There seems to be more pain and more questions than I had when I was that age. But what Jesus says is, You don't have to settle for it not being like that anymore. Go back to the beginning. And I love how it's written in the Greek language. Again, we talk about it. You catch some things in the Greek language because that word for remember, it's a command. It's an imperative, but it's written in the present, not the past. And so the way that we could read this is actually Jesus saying, here's what you need to do. If you you want to change, if you want to love me again, keep on remembering. Right? It's not a re-remember once and we're done until the love wavers and we go back again. He says, no, no, no. If you want to hold on to that love, then don't for a moment forget what I did for you on the cross. Don't forget where you were when I found you. Don't forget how low I reached and how far I pulled you up. Don't forget how much I love you. Hold on to it. Don't just remember it today, but remember it every day. Remember my love for you. Because Jesus wants to remind the church in Ephesus, he wants to remind us that all that we are and all that we have is because he's loved us first. But then Jesus says this, it's not only remember from where you have fallen, but then he says the second thing to do if you want to see change is he says, repent. We know that repentance literally means to change your mind, to agree with God, to recognize that you have failed to love, acknowledge your need for love. I don't know if it would have been a temptation for the church at Ephesus to be like, nah, you got it wrong, Jesus. Like, that's not us to kind of push back. We don't agree with your assessment of us and our spiritual walk. But repentance means, man, we're just going to agree with God. Because he's not wrong. He's never wrong. He's never made a mistake about you. He's never made a mistake about his church. He's perfect in all of his ways. He says, acknowledge that God is worthy of your love. Agree with God. But then he says this. He says, do the works you did at first. Now, that's interesting to me. Because he just praised them for the works. So so is Jesus saying, well, you got to do different works. Like those were good, but they're not the best works. I, I don't think it's Jesus necessarily saying, I need you to do something different than what I just praised you for in verses two and three. No, when I said, when, when, when Jesus says to, to, to do the works you did at first, I think he's saying, Do the same things, but do them with the right motivation. Go back to what motivated you at the beginning. It wasn't because this is what a church should do. It wasn't to be countercultural. It wasn't to prove a point. You were faithful. You loved. You endured. You went through hardship and persecution with joy in your heart because you loved me and you knew that I loved you. He wants them to continue to love righteousness, to believe truth, and to endure with hope, but he wants them to do it built on a foundation of love. 
And then as Jesus concludes the church in Ephesus, he ends with both a warning and an encouragement. The warning comes at the end of verse 5 when he says, otherwise. So if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't do the works you did at first, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now remember what the lampstand is. Revelation 1.20 tells us the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. Don't you love it when the Bible just tells you what the symbols are? He says the seven stars are the angels that could also be translated messengers of the seven churches. He says and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus says if you don't repent, if you don't remember, if you don't return to your first love, when he says, I will remove your lampstand, he is saying, if you don't love me, you won't be my church anymore. I will remove your lampstand. Lampstand's an interesting picture, right? Because a lamp gives off light. And what are we called to be? Salt and light to the world. And Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. He's saying, you ain't being salt and light anyway, so let's not act like you're my church. Let me just remind you again, this church, our church, new breed, doesn't exist because of our constitution and bylaws. It doesn't exist because we have the right structure and program and church government. It does not exist for any other reason than that Jesus allows us to exist. And that means that like the church in Ephesus, if we cease to love God As a church, then this church will no longer be a church. We might still get together in this room. We might still do some of the same things. But if we can't love God first and foremost, we're a social club. We're not a church. But Jesus also gives this encouragement. He doesn't leave it on the negative. Praise God. That's not even negative. It's just honest. But he also gives us this encouragement. In verse 7, he says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's so much to preach from verse 7 to. Let me just say this. In this verse, Jesus is is reminding the church just how good he is. He says, remember, if you love me, you will dwell with me for all eternity. And the church in Ephesus understood it. Loving Jesus isn't, it's not always easy. It doesn't make for an easy life. Loving Jesus doesn't make for a pain-free life. Not everyone is going to love you or even tolerate you. In fact, the world will hate you if you love Jesus like you should. But what Jesus is saying is that the hope you have in loving me is not that your life will be great now. It's that your life will be great in the next one. It's not about your best life now. It's about your best life to come. So let's take it back to the original question as we wrap this up. What's love got to do with it? The answer is everything. The church exists because of God's love. The church is faithful when it loves God back. And please hear me, I want it to be said of new breed that we love righteousness and justice. I want it to be said of new breed that we believe true things about God, that we have sound doctrine even when the world disagrees with us. I want it to be said of new breed that when things get hard and they don't go the way we thought they would go, that we endure and we do not grow weary. But more than anything, I want it to be said of new breed that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And I'm not just talking about we say that. 
That when we think about God, when we remember God, when we pray to God, when we read God's word, when we sing about him, there's just something in us, this affection that wells up, that we know that God is our greatest treasure and and the world could take everything else, but as long as we have him, we're going to be okay. And the only way that we will love God like that is when we keep on remembering. God's immeasurable love for us. The fact that when we were at our worst, he was at his best. When we rebelled against him, he sought to save us. He sent his son into a world that didn't want him and that didn't love him. He was faithful to God. And then he died our death. He paid our debt. He took our sin. And we crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And we can come with faith and repentance and find the greatest love that's ever existed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who has ears to hear and that we would listen to what the Spirit says. I pray right now in this moment, God, that the Spirit would would not raise any doubts in the minds of people or would not allow any doubts to be present in the minds of people who are loving God well. The Spirit would speak to them of their faithfulness and encourage them to continue to love God well. But I, I I also pray... I pray for those of us who, who may be in this room who might, who might be confused in thinking that we're loving God well when we're actually just loving the, the things more, the, the works and, and the motions. And, and if that's anyone in this room, I pray right now that the Spirit would just Speak to them the same words that Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. God, help us to love you with all that we are, with all that we have. Let it never be said of new breed God but I have this against you. God, help us to grow. And I thank you that you are faithful to us, that you are a God who allows repentance to take place and growth to take place because we will struggle. We will get it wrong. But God, you don't give up on us. And I praise you for that. Thank you that your spirit is at work in this church, in the lives of every brother and sister who makes up this church. God, that you have not left us to figure this out for ourselves, but you are working to finish the work that you started. And so help us to delight in that work and not push against it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.